0: All right, cool. So we're going to get into Friedrich Nietzsche um, for the first time, which is exciting. And I'm not starting at his first book, which is perhaps an odd thing to do, but I think on the genealogy of morality, at least that's what my edition—that's what the title is. Some would be on the genealogy of morals or the genealogy of morals, but mine is the third edition from Cambridge Texts, and this one's this one's quite good. Um, I haven't compared it, like translation-wise, because I don't know German, but to the uh, even to the other English translations. But this one has a really nice introduction that lays out very methodically and systematically what Nietzsche set out to do in this text, while supplying some kind of like supplement. Supplementary material relating to like Schopenhauer and how he's, you know some other thinkers influenced Nietzsche here. But one of the other reasons I chose this text, or the reason I really chose this text, was because it gives it, um, I find in relation to some of his other texts more of an overview of what he's trying to do. And I believe that that was his goal when he wrote it. He he, he wrote it with the intent of drumming up more support for his other books. Like, this, he didn't take this one, apparently, all too seriously. Which leads me into my first kind of, um, you know, preface to getting into it. He says that he writes in an aphoristic style. Now, what that means is that there are almost seemingly separate ideas riddled throughout the text that are just given a little bit of attention. So it's not as though there's one long narrative, which I don't even know is true. I, I would actually come to disagree with him with that. There are consistencies throughout the whole book, but it's broken into little like stanzas almost, longer than stanzas, but little paragraphs, Um, which can make it at at times a little bit uh, disjointed. So it'll make it a little bit of a challenge for me to kind of work through methodically and to present it here, but, you know, we'll do our best. Uh, But again, this is, I I feel like, a really good starting point for getting into Nietzsche's work, Um, and another good starting point, of course, would be his first book. Uh, you know, The Birth of Tragedy, which is I find really accessible as well. But it's more of a specific kind of um, Nietzschean approach, which of course I'll get to at some point. But this one is a nice kind of overview of what he's trying to do. So a little note on the title. And it it can be quite misleading, I think, um, on the genealogy of morality. So it's him kind of inputting a criticism against those people, what he calls, what he focuses on primarily as the English psychologists, as conducting a genealogy morality. Now, does that mean that Nietzsche is opposed to genealogy? Not quite. In fact, many people attribute this kind of genealogical method to him and how it influenced Foucault. Now, to understand genealogy, I think it would be good to turn to Foucault for a moment uh, and bring up a passage here from the Archaeology of Knowledge. So in the Archaeology of Knowledge, Foucault says that genealogy deals with series of effective formation of discourse. It attempts to grasp it in its power of affirmation, by which I do not mean a power opposed to that of negation, but the power of constituting domains of objects in relation to which one can affirm or deny true or false propositions. So embedded within the genealogical method, at least how I understand this, is the idea that what is being unearthed is not necessarily. And at another point in Foucault's text here, he says that it's not a search for origins, kind of transcendental historical facts, if you will, but are instead looking for the ways in which various um, parts played in forming, you know, our understanding of of a thing, right? And it's never really clear. So the genealogical method isn't like an excavation, which I've heard it often related to. And, you know, I often use that term to describe it, um, you know, for simplicity's sake. But it's not an excavation in that it does not point to a single kind of um, thing that can be unearthed. Rather, it gives us kind of the tools towards understanding maybe how something came to be. But first and foremost, it is not the only way that that thing might have come to be. So with that being said, we can jump right into it here. So in the the first line, probably one of my favorite lines in anything, uh, Nietzsche says, we are unknown to ourselves, we knowers. So he's referring here to those English psychologists, those people that are driving, you know, driving with a lot of force to understand the history of the human conception of morality, of the good, to which Nietzsche says, that's all well and good, but it seems as though we're overlooking something here. So this to, again, kind of preface something is Nietzsche's criticism that they're failing, at least these English psychologists and, and others, are failing to understand that the human is not innately moral. The human does not is not birthed into morality. Rather, these English psychologists from the get-go are misguided because they take as their axiom or as their point of departure the idea that there is a thing called morality and there is a thing called good. To which Nietzsche says, no, 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 no. We have to consider the ways in which this is not only um, a concept removed from us because it exists in the domain of language, which someone more familiar with his, uh, some of his other work, notably the, um, on, on truth and lies in the extra-moral or the non-moral sense, I think there are different titles of that text, um, would point to the kind of uh, inability to fully communicate something given the arbitrary nature of language. Nietzsche would say, not, not only that in relational language, of course, but this idea of morality is a construction that we have created that has very much derived from, from a kind of aristocratic logic. So it seems odd for him that we input this idea that is a pretty, at the time, like a modern phenomenon, and put it on to the past and say, it existed in the past here, here, and here, therefore we can find, trace a kind of origin or a genealogy of of that thing. So in a kind of quip, he says that these, these thinkers take as their a priori, so a priori being that thing, the kind of and be careful with this one. Um, the a priori is the idea that people, someone or people, have arrived at through a kind of through through logical reasoning, and it is points to be a kind of universal truth where it can apply to everyone. So it has a it, you know coming out of Kant has a relationship to that categorical imperative where if you are unsure about something, you put it to the categorical imperative test and say, would everyone you know, be okay with this. So you'd ask yourself, should I rob this store to feed myself? And you know, you'd you'd ask you'd ask yourself, if anyone was hungry, would they rob a store to feed themselves? If the answer is yes, then you know you're on off to something good. Now I don't I don't think Kant would be you know interested in these kind of petty examples, but that's a good kind of idea. So he says that these psychologists take morality as their a priori. Whereas for Nietzsche, he says he takes skepticism as his a priori, which is a, an interesting approach because that would imply, uh, you know, the, um, the fragility of the a priori in the first place, which he comes to criticize later in the text, you know, taking on thinkers like Kant and Hegel, which is why Nietzsche is so cool. So his skepticism comes at or, or is against the idea of a kind of, um, of a notion of the good or of the bad that floats above everyone, where, being humans, we can simply reach up into the ether, into the heavens, and then extract something called the good, and therefore we, you know, are part and parcel of a kind of godlike system or anything like that. Where Nietzsche says we have to understand that the good and the bad are value judgments that we have created; they are things that that don't don't exist in nature. So in that, in that way, he's really, and this is, I've certainly gotten into <laughs> arguments about this, but Nietzsche is very anti-methodological, okay? So he thinks that the method that these, you know, English psychologists kind of take up fail to see the world as it is. So Nietzsche is really, he's just, he's kind of pragmatic in that way. He just wants to look around and say, hey, things aren't, Good, people aren't good. like how can you deny this? Why are we kidding ourselves with this whole discourse around being good? And for those who don't know, um, probably the most important channel on YouTube on the internet or whatever is Contrapoints and she has a really interesting video on violence that's I think worth checking out and it certainly relates to all this kind of Nietzsche and stuff. But sorry, I digress. So of this idea of the good and the bad, Nietzsche asks why, okay? If we have these two conceptions of goodness and badness, why is it that we uphold the good? Because for him, he can, and I'm kind of jumping ahead of you a bit, for him, he conceives of the good, of the saying yes, or in a sense, saying no to oneself, you know, internalizing a kind of self-restraint and this has affinities, of course, with kind of religious doctrine and a term he comes to use, asceticism, a s c e t i c i s m, not aesthetics, but asceticism, the kind of command over oneself to live a you know a lowly life. Uh, he says that these these ideas are often wrapped up with the good, and he says that humans humans don't want that. Humans will want to indulge. That is part you know, quite simply of how humans exist as humans. And one way we can think of that is the only reason, you know, I'm here right now or anyone is listening is because our ancestors were better at killing than other ancestors. There's no other reason that people are around other than having a history of violence that leads up to their, you know, their being birthed. Uh, So for that reason, Nietzsche says that the good is actually quite a detriment to humanity because the good is what forecloses the possibility of a kind of becoming so this is a point that was brought up pretty uh, well in the introduction and i think it was i think it was written by keith ansel pearson um where he says that there are tendencies and he doesn't say this verbatim i'm kind of i'm reading between the lines here but there are tendencies to read a Nietzsche kind of darwinian thing so uh keith makes the case that that is that is not quite what is going on. Because Nietzsche does not believe that it's simply as though the environment impacts and guides how people act, right? How they engage with one another. In fact, there is a kind of a will, right? So, you know, we think of the will to power type thing, where humans actually have a degree of autonomy that moves beyond or has to, can take command over the environment, which is an important uh, distinction, I think. So for those that might it is to kind of ward off the associating Nietzsche with the kind of evolutionary uh, type of thinking and with that being said there is a mix so it's not as though the human is just like floats above everything else they are influenced of course by society by their natural surroundings hence the image he draws later the idea of the bird of prey now would the bird of prey be a bird of prey unless they've gone through the kind of evolutionary mechanisms that have brought them to that point, because of the environment, the bird of prey probably wouldn't be the bird of prey without those uh, determining factors. So this is just another thing to consider. So now we move into the first essay. Uh, And I I I don't think I was so clear that I was talking about the introduction up till there. But anyways, Uh, we move into the first essay here. So he says, of the English psychologists, that if they do take as their aim, the idea to discover a kind of history of human morality. He says that they better be prepared to accept the fact or accept the possibility that humans turn out to be immoral, right? That immorality is our only truth. Because if they don't see that, Nietzsche would, you know, he's like, well, you obviously are just, you know, looking through a specific lens. You are obviously slave to your own prejudices. You're obviously unknown to yourself hence the first or like the first uh the first line that opened his his book here and and therefore you are just you're not doing you know historical research at all you're just inputting your own um, ideas onto history so if they are unable to do that they then lack what uh, Nietzsche calls a kind of historical spirit so I think this also attests to his disdain for a kind of methodology because he just wants to see things at least for him and we could probably take him to task on this uh he just wants to see things for the, how they are right how things have happened in history uh how humans are not good to one another how humans are not good to themselves in many cases um so for that reason he gives us um what is perhaps a little bit of a romantic idea or romantic vision of someone able to distance themselves from their own prejudices, right? Which is one of the problems I think here, but you know, we can put that aside for now. So when thinking of the good or what the good is, Nietzsche gives us the image of the or the image or the idea of the unegoistical act. So he says that that is one of those things that is considered by English psychologists or anyone else almost to be an act of good. So of that act, and you think of volunteering or you know whatever, um, of the kind of benevolent, egoistical, unegoistical, unegoistical act, what we are seeing is actually um, the affirmation by those who benefit that this constitutes a good act, that this is good. So Nietzsche says, is this really good, or is this you know simply something that has been? Um, Something that has been determined by those in power. So here we, you know, we really see the influence that Nietzsche had on Foucault here, where he moves into this idea of uh, discourse, without using that word per se, um, and is talking about the way in which those who have power govern how other people consider various conceptions or concepts like the good and the bad. So he writes, "The seigneurial privilege of givingness." even allows us to conceive the origin of language itself as a manifestation of the power of the power of the rulers so language doesn't just exist in a bubble or vacuum it is very much influenced by those that you know write the dictionary write the history books about how we are to understand these various concepts which i think is a very uh, interesting analysis and and at the time for nietzsche to be writing this and the same kind of ideas echoed in his um on truth and lies in the extra-moral or non-moral sense. He, he was really ahead of his time when it came to this, really anticipating the kind of um, post-structuralist, quote-unquote, uh, camp to come out of France. And I don't know why the Germans didn't really take this up afterwards, but the French did. And there must be a reason for that, I just don't know why. So of the goods, speaking about the uh, way that language influences it, he says that, this isn't him verbatim, but he says that etymologically in many languages, the term good has its roots in the aristocratic class. So then he makes a distinction between two kinds of moralities. The one pushed by by the kind of uh, chivalric aristocrats and those from the priestly aristocrats. Now this, okay, um, full disclosure, I do not understand this part. This is when he speaks about... Uh, the Jewish people, as posing some kind of resistance to the advent of this idea called goodness. And I do not get it, but I'm going to try and explain, or at least um, elucidate how I understand it. And I hope that for those listening, you could, you know, correct me on this. So he says that there was a kind of reversal in the way that the Jewish people responded to this kind of Um, aristocratic concept of the good so instead of considering the aristocratic class as being the i guess the pinnacle of goodness he says that the jewish people found a way to you know turn the tables a bit and to consider a kind of lowliness or a kind of um, um, the lower to consider the lower classes to be a sign of the good now this was a way by which they opposed the monopoly held by the aristocratic classes on the thing called good. So it seems like Nietzsche is celebrating this, considering it to be a very, you know, certainly a good thing. But then he, then it's, he considers the way in which uh, Jesus was crucified, and how the crucifixion of Jesus was a kind of was a kind of red herring right so this is where it gets a little bit problematic and i worry about the anti-semitism that could be in here even though i've you know people have made it very clear ostensibly that um there is no anti-semitism here but he locates the death of jesus with uh with israel like uh with you know israel wasn't really but the the how it was the jewish people putting jesus to death which is already problematic in itself obviously when the romans were responsible but uh here we have this this here but he says at that, that moment turned the tides because it showed the world kind of turned the tables on the world uh Placing their targets or their sights on the wrong enemy, which was a strategy employed in order to um, kind of c- to confuse the world in a sense about what goodness was. And this opened the door, Nietzsche says, for a specific kind of love. Now, this whole idea, I really like I was debating with myself whether or not I'd bring it up at all, but I thought it important because I just I just don't get it. Um, so I'll you know, I'll move away from that because it's not necessary that we really labor on that anymore. But really, for those listening, if you have any ideas, I'd like to hear them. So considering the, uh, the sl- slavery in relation to this concept of good, Nietzsche says that slaves play a kind of instrumental role in maintaining these distinctions between the good and the bad. Now, this occurs when there is a degree of ressentiment, R-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-M-E-N-T, a kind of self-disdain, a resentment for oneself and a feeling of um, ineptitude, a kind of helplessness that is internalized by those people that are rendered slaves. So the slave class, when understood as a slave class and therefore not a good thing, is that or is the class that says no to itself, Whereas the aristocratic class says yes to itself, this is where the potential of the slave class lies. Not only in its disdain for the higher class, but in its refusal to accept itself as it is. In this way, it doesn't mirror per se the the aristocratic class. So there is a kind of potential there. Whereas chassancima, that idea that there was a kind of internalization of um, hatred of oneself doesn't allow for that kind of saying no to oneself, right? You you might not like yourself, but you're caught in a moment of kind of arrested development where you don't see yourself capable of really anything. So we get here kind of, and I'm I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit for a moment, uh, to get a kind of definition, where chesanzima is the internalization of repression that is sublimated through slave-like institutions to combat the noble class, but is that then any form of strategy? I think Nietzsche would say no. It is believed that it is a form of strategy, like being sorry for oneself, um, you know, internalizing sadness, or and, and internalizing a slave morality is believed to be something that can oppose uh, power, but it just works in its favor. So this chassantima gives or maintains the uh, distinction between good and bad or good and evil and i will draw a distinction between evil and bad because there is one Uh, but for now let's just say between good and evil because it believes itself to be good so if we live in a world where there are people who are repressed or suppressed or oppressed we understand them to be the good ones nietzsche says why why is it that we take people who are you know Put in a crappy situation as being in a desirable situation why do we romanticize their suffering and he says that this this is not you know a coincidence rather it plays a part in maintaining that very system of a kind of slave master-slave uh dialectic you know without synthesis per se a kind of master-slave dynamic that works to favor those people that can sit idly back and say I don't care if I'm evil right I'm rich I live in a castle like who really has it better we might ask so of the distinction between bad and evil and I will I'll say now I will kind of use the terms interchangeably even though uh Nietzsche draws a distinction and for some like perhaps hardcore Nietzscheans out there I might be committing like fucking blasphemy right now but I'm gonna do it anyways because I, in, at least in, with this text, I find it difficult to really sift out the distinction between the two. So he says that evil is a kind of original thing, and the or a kind of um, originary uh, distinction from the good. You know, looking back to the Bible, like evil, you know, is, is located with Satan or you know with uh, temptation or anything like that. Uh, whereas bad being bad kind of develops out of that, it is more of a modern thing. So you're you're bad if you are to, I don't know, to, to to own property and be the person that has command over others, for for example. Whereas that that is not something evil per se, right? But we understand it once we've entered this kind of slave master dynamic that constitutes the bad because we can't really say it constitutes evil because evil is a lot more pernicious it's a lot more um, violent as as well you know which just this also attests to the way in which society is governed by like the bible and, and other kind of religious doctrines that Nietzsche of course is not a huge fan of so this internalization of ressentiment that doesn't allow slave-like people or people in a slave position to actually challenge uh, modes of authority in order to then take over that authority because it becomes in the moment of ressentiment it becomes simply a task of overthrowing the people that stand for bad right there is no desire to because we understand or the people understand that that would this would constitute being bad there is no desire to take over those positions Right. So it's and this is this kind of rhetoric certainly comes out in current like think of uh, like the Occupy movements or something like that, where there is simply a desire to overthrow those that have, in a sense, the birds of prey, those people that have made it. Now, with all this being said, I obviously personally support all these movements, but considering Nietzsche here, I think he'd be a little bit hesitant to think that that would give us anything good. In fact, it would just be a way in which everyone could kind of internalize a slave morality based off of these conceptions of good and evil, or good and bad. So he says, and this is a really interesting quote, he says, in losing our fear of man, we have lost our love for him. So in the lack of respect one ha- one might have with those people that command power, those people that have power uh, or lose our fear of them because we come to hate them, not not fear them, we lose our connection to ourselves and a kind of dynamic that occurs between people. where not, everyone can hold power or the same kind of power where there is a kind of dynamic interplay of different uh, modes of authority that exist among everyone where everyone exists in a sort of circus. They each play a part. So then the, uh, the image that he draws is between the lamb and the bird of prey, where the lamb hates the bird of prey, right? And he just says, okay, then why do we all want to be lambs? Like, why is it that we think of our, that, that the way to challenge the bird of prey is to become its, its prey, Right? He's, and so we tell the bird of prey that they are to be, feel guilty for being the bird of prey. And then this as well works in the hands of those that hold power because people then come, according to Nietzsche, to construe weakness itself as freedom, which is then regarded as being good. So people take the good as being that thing that is desirable, which has an association with one's weakness or their lack of authority, their lack of power, their lack of will. And then that becomes their model for how to be, you know, a decent human, which is all just coming out of religious doctrine and turn the other cheek type thing. All right, so now we'll move on to the second chapter here. And, you know, Going through this there are so many other kind of insights that that he gives us because it's aphoristic, right? He doesn't necessarily expound upon every single idea he puts forth, so it's difficult to really present without just kind of going through a checklist of the various things he says. So obviously it's my standard thing is to say go read the book because you probably would read it in another way than me, but also there's a lot of stuff I omit because I'm trying to generate a kind of cohesive narrative that, that makes this work presentable or graspable So here we enter the idea of the what's called the social straitjacket, where we are by entering society, we are then turned into kind of docile beings, docile bodies that internalize the will of you know society at large So we are then given the possibility to say yes to ourselves. So we can be I guess, um, rendered subservient by internalizing the idea that we are good, you know, being the lowly class, which I would certainly fall into. And then we can also internalize a kind of um, or kind of slave-like morality by saying no to oneself because, you know, you don't like who you are. You don't like what has happened to you. Now, and I want to make it as clear as possible, like, of course, this doesn't, I don't think that this dissuades the possibility of things like revolt or revolution or anything like that, but it certainly gives us a way to um, question what these acts are for. Is it simply in the service of maintaining a sort of already, always already oppressive mode of good and bad or good and evil? that will not actually propel us into a new system? Or will it just, you know, will it just do nothing for us? So I think that the, you know, Nietzsche gives us a nice roadmap or a nice way to become aware of our own s- subtle prejudi- prejudi- prejudices, my God, that surreptitially, that kind of sneakily come into our being, right? And influence the way in which we perceive the world. Now, one of, one of the ways that that happens, especially through this kind of social straitjacket, is us recognizing other humans as peers, you know, as people among other people, all on a kind of equal playing field, which at first glance might appear like a good thing, you know, opening up the domain for a possible democratic system, which maybe it is, who knows. But Nietzsche is a little bit more skeptical, saying that we haven't just arrived at this position out of nothing or from nothing there was a lot of what he says blood and horror that brought us here so locating the aristocratic class or the class that kind of propels history sorry marxist uh, the class that kind of propels history they are only where they are because they've they exerted the most domination over others so for that reason it is a system that is based off of you know, the blood of others, the exclusion of others. So here he he gives us a kind of, he moves into um, another kind of analysis to consider how people be, internalize the idea that they are on an equal playing field with other people. So he says that the the idea of guilt or the concept of guilt comes from the word debt. It has its its roots with the word debt, at least in the German, I believe. So, this indebtedness or indebtedness also has an affinity with um, the idea of community itself. So, community, be, the two words in that uh, come, which is from the Latin, is, um, is like w- being with, and then munity comes from munis, or the gift, and if we think back to mouse, you know, we think of the idea of the gift as being something that it kind of opens up a perpetual debt where you give something to someone and then they are then expected to give you something greater, I don't know, maybe equal or greater back. So there is a kind of perpetual indebtedness. So if we live in a society that tells us that we should be grateful at every moment for being propelled into a society that protects us from the burden of nature or the violence of nature or anything like that, we are put in a perpetual state of debt. Now, Nietzsche, being very clever, says that because because etymologically, guilt has a relationship to the word debt, we can then trace this idea of guilt coming from debt, which comes from that being um, told that we should be grateful, putting us in a state of indebtedness, grateful for being given society. So then we can all be, through our equal indebtedness, we all internalize a degree of equality or a degree of sameness. So for that reason, he then moves to another kind of way to think about this. We then come to associate ideas of pain, suffering, injury as being similar. So we, what we have is a kind of creditor-debtor relationship, where the creditor being like society, is able to inflict pain on individuals that do not subscribe to it or that break laws. Because we have, and he he says this is kind of, this is one of the mysteries, for some reason we have come to equate injury with pain. So if someone breaks the rule of law, it, for Nietzsche says, okay, why is it that we then punish them with physical pain? And he, of course, is thinking about like torture. Why? do we think that that does something? So if I steal, um, if I steal some something from someone else, why is it that the state would see it necessary for me to undergo physical pain as opposed to just giving back the thing that I stole or the idea that I have to give back what I stole and then receive physical pain? Well, Nietzsche says this has a relationship to this kind of creditor debtor system we find ourselves in where you always being a debtor have to give something back and some and that and some often takes takes the form of a kind of violence to oneself of a kind of pain inflicted to oneself so he says that this has its roots in the kind of blood and horror that formed that allowed society to develop because it was a society that saw the people uh, per- saw those who perished not be a part of the society, saw people perished as being those that spilled blood, those that suffered, as not being part of the society, our society itself has come to associate that with a pretty undesirable state of being. So therefore, in a sense, that is how we come to justify, and note this wasn't going on through anyone's minds. And that's why Nietzsche is such a good thinker. He he kind of exposed this, even though there were the kind of Villamovitzes and the, uh, what are they called? Um, Philologists of the world that were like, Nietzsche, you don't know anything about history, but putting them to the side. At least that's how I understand his considering uh, society's belief that inflicting pain makes up for one's debts. And this comes down to our general enjoyment of cruelty or that, uh, like that contrapoints video on violence that everyone should go and see, uh, he says that if there's no cruelty, there's no feast. Feast has to come out, or our ability to celebrate has to come from our having triumphed over somebody else, over somebody else. So he says that life on Earth, Earth was more cheerful before this kind of creditor-debtor relationship opened up, where people would, of course, still suffer. Right? They'd suffer at the claws of nature and the talons of the beastly creatures that exist within it but the human was not they wouldn't suffer and internalize guilt they would just suffer physically which for um Nietzsche is a lot you know a lot better than suffering mentally and this really provides the basis for Foucault's thesis in discipline and punish where he kind of locates the penultimate penultimate moment of this shift from inflicting pain on the body to inflicting pain on the mind, which is infinitely worse, right, for, uh, I think, for Nietzsche, where entering this kind of carceral state, no one is allowed to be who they want to be or who they can be. They're instead forced into a kind of normalized uh, state of being. So the upper classes also would recognize the possibility that this kind of debtor-creditor relationship would come back on them so they would they then erected various institutions or legal institutions that would i guess filter all complaints that people have through them therefore absolving or removing the um those in power the years to credit class from any kind of guilt so we see the birth of justice in a sense with that where it serves the end of maintaining the power in A select few in the hands of a select few now this strategy is particularly clever because it doesn't um, it doesn't say no to things like punishment to suffering to pain that people have already come to internalize but instead mandates it and it makes it a part of the kind of state system that gave birth to those modes of um, those modes of punishment so it tells the people that this is what is part of being part of this system, and it is also for your virtue. You can get gain virtue out of this because if you have any qualms with anyone else or with those in power, here is the institution to do it. So it's a kind of scapegoat, a kind of red herring that takes people away from recognizing the real formations of power. And I use that word a little sparingly because... You know, I don't want to input too much of my kind of Foucaultian mind onto onto this stuff, but the the there are affinities to be drawn between the two. Um, so it would serve the end of maintaining that kind of power in the hands of the few. And I was just reading today: tw- twenty six people in the world have enough uh, the same amount of wealth as half of the world. It's like how, how many people? Like seven billion, probably seven and a half billion people on Earth. Twenty six have half, like three billion, three and a half billion people have the same amount of wealth as twenty six. Like, ugh, that's that's frustrating. That's revolution. Yeah, fuck Nietzsche. We could, you know, this is all this is do all this is doing is inhibiting us from taking to the streets and, you know, taking over, embracing our chasantima, our shitty situation. But yeah, meh. Yeah. I digress once again. So Nietzsche gives us two uh, definitions of punishment, or two kind of um, two components to it. There is permanence, which is the custom, the act, the drama, and then there is fluidity, which is its meaning, purpose, and expectation. So the how it is acted and for what justification. What entering uh, society does for us, and here he gives us another one of his kind of integral terms, is that it gives us it propels us into a kind of bad conscience. So by being propelled into a system of almost perpetual uh, peace and safety, supposedly, um, what we have or what we internalize is that bad conscience or that kind of fear of our own potential. Because we then turn the gaze inward and say, hey, I don't want to step out of line because everyone is looking at me here in a kind of panoptic uh, configuration so that we have to you know I consider it to be a gift to be part of this system and I don't want to screw that up so what this results in is man's sickness of man or like the quote before uh, by losing our fear of man we lose our love for him all man man him him man man there are no women here fuck women Nietzsche didn't like women but yeah apparently I still entertain these ideas whatever well actually I think that might be important to expound on because and that's one of my things like too many people are prepared to um, uh, absolve Nietzsche of guilt right to uh, brush it aside as though using these kind of gendered, this gendered language is just a coincidence which I wholeheartedly disagree with and here I'm going to hopefully some people will be mad with me but fuck that this is it's not really acceptable and to be honest I don't know what the German terms are so I don't know if they are gendered terms or if the translator just made them gendered um so you know I'm also withholding judgment there but Nietzsche said not great things about women in the past or in the past in some of his other texts it kind of he holds kind of romantic ideas about women that are just make me shake my head. It's just redonculous. So anyways, this bad conscience provides the possibility for the unegoistical person, again, that person that, that considers themselves to be good by being weak. They then internalize the bad conscience as a way to justify their being in that position. So this kind of internalization of guilt, right has it has like far-reaching roots and he does provide some other kind of historical examples that make it a little bit um harder to follow than you know us just saying that it's society so he says that for to some extent we have always had a kind of creditor debtor relationship where we have felt indebted to those of the past so for a long time it was our ancestors that gave us you know that established our tribes or our um you know our if they weren't societies, whatever they were, communities. And then if we think of the Christian, uh, Christian dogma, like how we are uh, in, uh, eternally indebted to Jesus for giving himself over on the cross, which are all bad things, right? These things do not allow humans to engage in, in ways that they would want, but instead governs the way that they can be and exist in the world. So this, this is when he says that atheism is one of those things that lessens the burden of guilt, because atheism does not attach us to some kind of um, transcendent point that we should be grateful for, for giving us what we have. Atheism turn, give, gives us that authority. It allows us to determine what we are and for what means. So for him, and this is one of his opinions, polytheism represents a less oppressive system than Christianity, because there's not just like one God, right, so it might be like kind of a simulated degree of choice, but it is choice nevertheless, and you can associate with which gods you want. And the same applies to Hinduism, of course, where there's any, you know, you are expected to, in a sense, if you follow the, the, that religion, um, to uh, locate yourself with particular gods, so monotheism for Nietzsche is a no, 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 no. And then closing off this chapter, he says that the what he calls the man of the future, or kind of Obermann, <laughs> will be the person that must conquer God. But what is more, they must also conquer nothingness. So there are very many people on, or just one that I ref- refuse to mention the name of, on the internet who proclaims to know Nietzsche and spreads the word of Nietzsche, suggesting that Nietzsche is an advocate for religion and God and all these types of things. Whereas that is not the case, because they believe that, or this person, believes that if you get rid of God, then you enter a degree of nothingness, and what Nietzsche feared was nothingness. Nietzsche feared both. Nietzsche didn't think that just because you got rid of God, you would automatically enter nothingness. But he said if that happened, we must also combat nothingness where we have to craft meaning for ourselves at a kind of individual level. Or if you're part of a community that you have learned to love and learned to be a part of, uh, where people work together in their various different roles, where you can develop your own meaning, right? It doesn't have to be determined by a god, nor does it have to be pure nihilism. So those people that also say that Nietzsche's a nihilist is, are, you know, in my mind, not, not hitting the mark. But here we go, moving into the third chapter. Third, third essay, I should say. And here we come into asceticism that I mentioned earlier. So A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M, the internalization of a kind of hatred of oneself, or the desire to live a lowly life, to kind of continually punish oneself to take on a kind of a poor attitude. So our, our um, fascination and obsession with asceticism points to our desire to will nothingness, which is a product of kind of modern modern times, than to will nothing at all. Or then, th- sorry, than to not will at all. So we would rather will a bad life, a life of pure crappiness, than to not will at all. So asceticism has been a thing that has been internalized by some of the greatest minds, Nietzsche says, from Kant to, you know, whoever, <laughs> whoever else. Suggesting that asceticism has been, they've internalized that as being the way by which they can enter a kind of um, higher state of being, where they are not burdened by pleasure, they are not burdened by desire or anything like that, where they can just get down to work, kind of Protestant work ethic before you know Weber. So (laughs) the way that the way that he frames it again is not great towards women, of course. But he says that asceticism for philosophers is how they attain the boldest intellectuality. And he he goes on to say that that is why so many of them were never married. Which is... mm -hmm. But I think he he does have a point. These people certainly um, internalize the idea that in order to be a productive, higher agent in society, you must strip away the things that you want. To which Nietzsche says that sucks like why would you do that that all we have in this life is to engage with what we want it's kind of like in um the canterbury tales you remember uh, you remember if you've read it there's the the wife of bath who's like i have a vagina and it feels good to fuck like why wouldn't i be doing this to the you know the priestly character or something who's like yeah you can't you can't do that and she says if god gave me something that feels good why it would be you know, I'd be going against him if I didn't enjoy it. So this asceticism opens up kind of a paradox then because it we, we then come to construe suffering as joyful, right? Because we take it as being productive and then we can then look at ourselves in a higher esteem, higher regard, and it becomes something that we then desire. So we, through asceticism, we can then come... We then can come to like ourselves, to to which Nietzsche says that is simply an internalization of your hatred of oneself rather than it being, you know, what you're doing, what you actually want. So then he does his slight against uh, Hegel and Kant, suggesting that there is no kind of perfect individual that we can arrive at, the kind of perfect subject, which is often arrived at supposedly through a kind of self-imposed asceticism. So in his words, and he puts this really well, he says, From now on, my philosophical colleagues, let us be more wary of the dangerous old conceptual fairy tale which has, set us, which has set up a pure, willless, painless, timeless subject of knowledge. Let us be wary of the tentacles of such contradictory concepts as pure reason, absolute spirit, knowledge as such. Here we are asked to think an eye which cannot be thought at all, an eye turned in no direction at all, an eye where the active and interpretive powers are to be suppressed, absent, but through which seeing still becomes a seeing something. So it is an absurdity, and non-concept of the eye that is demanded. There is only perspectival seeing, only a perspecti- per- perspectival knowing. The more affects we are able to put into words about a thing, the more eyes, various eyes, we are able to use for the first, for the same thing. The more complete, complete will be our concept of the thing. Our objectivity, which is a really powerful statement, right, and it resonates with that other uh, Nietzschean statement: "There are no facts; there are only interpretations." So, for Nietzsche, the project is not to arrive through a kind of a priori reasoning, by you know that we can uh, we can take up by internalizing a kind of ascetic ideal or hatred of oneself uh, to arrive to propose that there is a kind of ideal subject or a kind of objectivity in the world. He says that no, if we, what we really want is to try and loosen the shackles of asceticism, of chasantima, of control, and then allow people to speak their minds and take for them or take from them their opinions about various things so that we can develop a more full portrait of of any given thing that we are evaluating, right? Where we can have more eyes that are not influenced by Authority, not influenced by power or anything like that, that can give us a better idea of what a thing is as opposed to just, you know, a few guys kind of reasoning these things out, which is, for Nietzsche, you'll never arrive at anything useful there. So, asceticism, he says, is a strategy employed by those who are undergoing a degenerating life. So, if your life is going in the crapper, you then say, well, I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z. I'm really gonna punish myself, get my shit together. You know, I'll make my bed in the morning, like as though that is absurd. Um, and then I, I will be happy. I will be better. To which I think Nietzsche would say, "No, that is simply your internalization of what is told of you, not what you actually want." We are unknown to ourselves. We knowers. Ours. So in relation to the sick, he says that the happy people should not take on the role of nurses and doctors. Ascetic priests takes on the role of doctor for the sick, but who is also sick. So those kind of self-help people that are all over the, the internet, as though, you know, having someone tell you how to be happy will do it for you, when it, it is a completely individualistic thing. And so many people deny that, themselves, that they think that, oh, I have to have follow x y and z doctrines to be happy and it's i'm not saying it's easy to do to be happy it's it's actually quite impossible especially uh today because there are so many forces telling you not to be happy not to take care of yourself but to instead focus about others which isn't in itself a bad thing but it should certainly be that people take care of themselves first which is why i think there's a lot of um a lot of power and i think a lot a lot to be said about what is currently going on in a lot of um, feminist circles that really um, play up this idea of taking care of oneself, which is why, you know, things like safe spaces are very good, like, for me. Whereas someone could say, oh, no, that's just a sign of weakness. I would say, no, it's actually a place where people can, having undergone a battle, can then do what is best for them or what they consider to be best. And I don't necessarily mean like designated, quote unquote, safe spaces, which which are fine in themselves, but that people find ways that they can create their own safe spaces, whether it's, you know, doing art or doing, you know, music or, you know, writing math equations. I I don't really care. But the thing that makes them feel like they are being, that they are happy, that they are what they are and what they want to be. So this asceticism opens or presents a kind of what he calls a mechanical activity so this mechanical activity because it is regimented and mandated and controlled and accepted by society because it does in a sense um, have an affinity with the kind of uh, production model mode of society we then come to be kind of mechanical beings right A kind of machinic enslavement and here again we get another kind of Foucaultian paradigm because in order to be a kind of mechanical being you have to Self-survey, right? You have to be um, always rendering yourself docile, always turning the panoptic gaze back on yourself. So here we get the real kicker, where he says that in relation to Christianity, uh, so between the Old Testament and the New Testament, he tells us that he prefers the former, the Old Testament, because they, you know it's not quite so you know happy. Uh, he says that. Science is essentially the mirror of the aesthetic ideals imposed by religion, which is very true, because science, uh, you know, what falls into the domain of science, you know, these ideas of health, these ideas of like proper body image things, these ideas of, um, you know, what is, what is truth, anything like that, which Nietzsche completely would, you know, thinks is useless and think are, would be modes of control. So he says that we have to be very careful. And again, I'm speaking of that person on the internet who, you know, upholds both science and religion and claims to be a Nietzschean. It boggles my mind. But with that being said, and then we'll move in to the end here, where he says that scientists aren't free spirits because they still believe in truth. Boom. Ah, ah crazy stuff i don't know that's the mic drop like done so that i guess that kind of gets to the end of it but he leaves us with a, a nice thing where he says that it's not asceticism per se that he really despises it's when it's an asceticism that is imposed upon someone where if someone saw themselves or felt they really wanted to live like a kind of ascetic life whatever that might look like of course, Nietzsche wouldn't have a problem with that. And, you know, even how I'm framing this, like as though we need the approval of Nietzsche and how we live through life. And that's why it's important to even take, you know, the people that tell us to take down our idols and take down our gods, how we don't then lionize them and make them our idols and make them our gods. So he leaves us with a nice passage. He says, The meaninglessness of suffering, not the suffering of, was a curse that has so far blanketed mankind, and the ascetic ideal offered man a meaning. So there is a kind of potentiality with it there. And I guess I can kind of leave you with that. So for those that listened, thanks. I hope you got something out of it. I, uh, I like this text. It's good stuff. And the version I have, uh, which is the third edition, as I said, for the Cambridge text in the History of Political Thought, has a couple of other essays attached to it. The um, Homer's Contest and the Greek State, I think. Or am I just lying? Um, yeah, Homer's Contest and the Greek State, which are two nice essays from his early stuff. Uh, but yeah, take care. If you got a problem, you know how to leave it.